This conversation is sponsored by Mary Nazal Batayne. This is what I know. We're all connected to one another, the earth and all her inhabitants. We thrive on these connections, real ones that touch our soul, fill our hearts and invigorate our mind. I have been so fortunate to experience this all my life, meeting extraordinary, ordinary folks who inspire and provoke. My name is Khadija Mhesin. Welcome to Adventures of the Soul Conversations. My hope is that they will fill your cup as they have filled mine. My guest today saw herself in the faces of a group of boys playing soccer in the street in Clarkston, Georgia, in a chance encounter that would change the trajectory of her life, theirs, and hundreds of others soon after. She told me the only difference between her and those kids was her education. Through their shared love of soccer, Luma Mufleh and a group of 30 immigrant children from war-torn countries, including Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Bosnia, Burma, Somalia, and Sudan put together the Fuji soccer team. This humble soccer team formed a nucleus of what would become a powerful organization advocating for social justice. A school, a tutoring program, a summer camp, a college prep program, and a community and support network that is today helping the globe. I honestly see myself and my own girls in Luma. I see in her story hope, inspiration, and testament to the power of human connection and finding one's purpose, one soccer ball, one meal, and one piece of homework at a time. Luma Mufleh needs no introduction. She's the CEO and founding director of Fuji's Family Inc., a non-profit organization that uses the power of soccer, education, and community to empower refugee children to integrate into the United States. She is a 2016 Top 10 CNN hero. She has been featured on CBS Sunday Morning, ESPN, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Sports Illustrated, Forbes, and so many others. Her TED Talk, entitled Don't Feel Sorry for Refugees, Believe in Them, has been featured as 2017's most influential talks with over a million and a half views. She's a Jordanian immigrant to the US of Syrian descent. She received her BA in anthropology from Smith College and recently completed the executive program in social entrepreneurship at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Your TED talk last year was awesome. And I have a feeling you hate public speaking, but I also have a feeling that public speaking is chasing you wherever you go. Um, uh, and I'm sorry that I, I'm putting you uh, <laughs> through it again now. Um, in your TED talk, you mentioned that you were showing your kids videos on grit. And all I could think of when you were saying this is these kids experience grit every single minute of their day. And yet you insist on sharing um, videos on grit with them. You know, this is something I imagine people like us, privileged, um, worried about our kids and how our kids will turn out. And yet you're showing refugee kids who have suffered so much and continue to suffer as they start a new life, yeah. videos on grit. Um, I think part of it is to remind them how strong they are and how resilient they are. Um, 
and that you always have to fight, like regardless of how comfortable you are in your life, like there's always more work to be done. Um, and sometimes uh, it's more their parents than me. They'll be like, oh, you're getting spoiled. You're getting too American. You don't understand what we went through. Um, and that's why like, I feel it's important for them to understand their roots and the struggles and suffering of their people. Um, because sometimes it's really easy to forget or compartmentalize. And if you do that, then I think you become less empathetic and compassionate. Um, and sometimes my, my players get frustrated with me. Like, they, like, why do you have to always remind us, you know, that this is what our parents did for us? Um, and I think it's important. Like, I think culturally it's important for us to honor our parents and our families. Um, but it's also for them to realize that because they struggled and suffered, it makes them stronger. It doesn't make them weaker. It makes them better people. You know, take something that people think maybe is a weakness for them or poor little refugees, you suffered so much. And I'm like, you survived all of this. Like you have this strength that most people will never tap into. Um, yeah. It's really mind blowing to me, you know, to have, for, to, for these kids to have experienced so much and uh, and the work you do with them. I know you've told your story a thousand times, um, but I would really love it if you would share just uh, maybe uh, headlines. There's so much depth and so much um, uh, b profound uh, uh, suffering, inspiration and joy in, in your many, many years. But if we can, and I feel like it kind of uh, uh, limits and just touches on the surface when you say, you know, I went to school and then I did this and then I did this. You just ignore the, the amount of years that it took you to get to where you are today. So if you can, uh, um, if you can just compress everything in, in a couple of minutes. Um, yeah, so I, I went to college in... Um I went to college in Massachusetts right after uh, graduating from ACS in Amman. Um, and, you know, after graduation, I, I didn't want to go back. I wanted to stay. Um, and, you know, my parents were not happy with that. And you told me if I wanted to do that, I was on, on my own. Um, and I don't know, I'm going to fast track through that part. That was probably one of the uh, lowest points in my life. Um, but, you know, I, I had really good friends in, in college that helped me get through through that part. Um, and then I think, like, a lot of people after college, you don't know what you want to do. You don't have this purpose. And sometimes your life purpose comes from, like, parents or society. And for a long time, I, I think I was just trying to impress my family back home or try to get validation from them that I could do this on my own. You know, so I applied to law school. I started a business. Um, I did some tech stuff, but I was never uh, happy. And, you know, in my mind, I was like, oh, maybe I'm just not happy because a part of me, you know, my Jordanian part is not complete. Like I, I lost that. Um, but I think a lot of it was because I, you know, as, as much as I, I love, um, law and business like that's not my passion like my passion is working with kids and you know it was by complete accident i had left uh my cafe to run some errands and there's a middle eastern grocery store about 10 minutes from where i live 
where I can get like uh, the real pita bread and hummus and you know everything to make our food. And I missed my turn, and I ended up, you know, driving through this uh, little part of Atlanta, and uh, I U-turned into this apartment complex, and I saw kids outside playing soccer. And it felt like I had been transported outside of the United States, and I felt I was in uh, part of Amman, where everybody's playing outside in the streets, and, um, you know, maybe I was a little homesick, but it reminded me a lot of home. And of growing up without coaches and parents yelling at you with, you know, just playing the game that I think we all love so much. Um, and I grew up playing it in Amman with my cousins and brothers and neighbors. And it was always an escape for me. Did you play it professionally? Sorry to interrupt you. Because I, I was trying to figure out if you were, like, were you a, a serious soccer player? I, I, I was somewhat serious. So I played in high school. Uh, I played on the team in high school. Oh, I played okay. here in college, um, but then the commitment was too much. You know, I think my entire uh, high school career I was defined as an athlete. And then when I got to college, it started again. I was like, I don't want to just be an athlete. Like I want people to, like I want people to see me as something more than that. And I want to experience other things. So I did a year and then I always did intramural or club soccer. Um, but yeah, um, but soccer was your thing, the love affair. It's a sports like soccer, basketball, like anything oh, with the ball, like just let me escape with it. Um, but, uh, you know, like uh, basketball, baseball, that was more organized in Amman. Soccer was the only one that was not organized. I think um, so. I think soccer for for girls is uh, was not. But now it's actually more organized than uh, than for boys played in the league in Amman, um, I was like one of two girls that played. And then in high, in high school, like we we're lucky to, to be able to form teams, but there weren't other schools that had teams. So we had to play, you know, in Cyprus and Athens and Egypt. Um, and, and then when my sister, she's 11 years younger, she had a much better experience because it was. Yeah, much, it's even much better now. It's much yeah. better now. And then now, like, I see, oh, we're, the, we're, we're going to the Women's World Cup or we're trying to qualify. And it's awesome that it's gone that far. Yeah, yeah. So you took a wrong turn, met those boys. Yeah. And um, I, I had been coaching for about five years in, in Atlanta, middle class, upper middle class, uh, predominantly white kids. Um, and I don't know how much you know about sports in America. It's very organized. It's about paying to play. Um, a lot of controlling helicopter parents. Um, and I, I, I felt I had to... And very much focused on winning. Uh, I think I heard you speak about your frustrations with that, about the obsession with winning and uh, not necessarily focusing on including all the girls and, you know, investing in... The good players are not not so great ones. Yeah, and and like the good players benefit from having bad players on the on the field. Like you learn how to help each other and teach each other and back each other up. And um, like I think the sport is a tool for getting groups of people together. Um, but it also felt like, yeah, I, I wasn't having as much fun, and I think the timing was just all perfect. Um, I got out of my car, I had a soccer ball, uh, 
the boys wanted to wanted the ball, um, and I wanted to play. So we had our little exchange, um, and you know, some of the a uh, couple of them were from Sudan, uh, three were from Afghanistan, one was from Liberia. You know, and they were surprised that I was also foreign born because to them I looked like an American. I spoke like an American, and so I started speaking Arabic. Um, they'd never seen women and girls play. Um, but it, it was the start of the, our first team. And, and, and you also mentioned that uh, I think uh, one of the boys' mother was stunned because she saw you from the back, so she had no idea. <laughs> she, she didn't yeah, think. Cause, yeah, because the boys kept going back and telling her they were Afghan. They were like, no, our coach is Muslim. It's a female because she kept worrying, like, where are you going every afternoon? And so when she walked in, you know, from the back, like my hair is short. I had shorts on. And she just started yelling and screaming and went to grab, get her hijab to cover up. <laughs> the boys are like on the floor laughing. And I was so confused as to what was happening. And she didn't believe until I said, you know, and then she looks at me. She's like, oh, you're that kind of Muslim, you know, like, <laughs> that oh, kind of Muslim. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm that kind of you know, that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. And then you put together a team. I, uh, I understand. 30 kids? Yeah. 30 kids. So uh, they came out to try out. And, um, you know, I think like most people, I, I live in, in my little bubble. And um, for most of my time in America, I blocked out all the poverty and the issues that were there. Um, and I, I was just shocked. I was just shocked that uh, the level of poverty that could happen in the United States uh, in a country with so much, um, like uh, the kids that I started coaching, some of them didn't have food at home. They didn't have, uh, clothes. They, you know, and I was just like, and it was five miles from where I lived. Um, and I had seen it. Sluma, what stunned me about your experience helping those kids is that it's not like you were extremely well off anyway and you had filed for bankruptcy things were tough for you and yet you found a way to help them out yeah i mean for me it's like i know the resources i had was like i i could play i could coach them i could teach you know those were skill sets i had and i you know like i remember taking one of my players home and he was holding his stomach and he's like oh i'm hungry and i thought he was trying to get me to stop at mcdonald's or taco bell and i'm like you're gonna be home soon there's food and he's like uh, no coach, it's that time of the month. And that meant the time the food stamps run out. And, you know, I, in my, you know, very privileged upbringing, I started judging. I was like, oh, his mom is spending his money on like wasteful things. He doesn't know how to manage a budget. Um, and I went and bought groceries for him and then, you know, sat down with his mom and tried to, to make a budget and she worked full time. And there was no place in this budget that I could cut costs. Um, cause she wasn't get, getting paid enough. You know, she was cleaning ho rooms at the Ritz Carlton and could not feed her three children. And it just, it stunned me. Like I think, uh, refugees in America show everything that is good about the system and everything that is bad about it. Um, and but then I was like, I can't buy groceries every week. I can't buy it for every player. And so how do I give them the tools? How do I, you know, 
if the mom needed an extra job or can she share an apartment with another family at least temporarily until they save money um and then understanding that the parents are the ones sacrificing that it's the kids that needed the education that will get them out of that cycle so at first you're so i'm just walk me through your process because you know i mentioned earlier before we started taping that um you know i was very very emotional yesterday i watched some videos of yours online and I saw myself in you, I saw my daughters in you. And, um, but you know, it was, I was in tears, but the good tears because you did something. You pinpointed, uh, you identified, uh, first of all, you established a connection with these boys. And you know, that is beyond, I think, any government or uh, any institution can do this connection, this personal connection. And then you found out mo more about their needs food so that was one walk me through your thoughts you know when you would go home at night after you 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 coach the kids and and maybe you bring them groceries what was going through your mind in terms of how do i how do i help what do i do where do i start before you go to education because this was this was how it started right yeah I mean, for me, it's like, okay, I, I can definitely coach. I can start a team. I, I know how to do that. Um, but if your team is hungry, they can't play. You know, if, if, if a player on your team is worried that the, they're going to get kicked out of the apartment, they can't play. Um, their stomach hurts. They're holding yeah. their stomach. Yeah. And, you know, like sometimes I would come home and be like, well, I'm not going to eat. I want to experience how much they're suffering. And that was just like, that was just a horrible phase of like, I, like you know, we fast. I know how that feels not to have food all day. Yeah, but you're thinking um, about food all day and you know the, the privilege that you have, you're going to eat. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so trying to see what little things I could do, you know, so like if we have a game, bringing sandwiches for the whole team, you know, not just one or two kids that I know maybe are hungry. I just, I was like, you know, we're all the same. We're all in the same boat from week to week. I don't know what changes for every family. Um, and then getting my friends involved, um, getting them to help out. But for us, it's like feeding them was just a band-aid solution. Like food, we can't, you know, like I, I didn't have the resource to feed my team. It's not sustainable. You didn't even have money to buy them uniforms. Did you? Yeah, no, yeah. no. I mean, we had t-shirts, we had white t-shirts and we wrote our numbers on the back. Um, but it's like, what can we do with the bare minimum? But when you'd go home at night and you're in your bed and there's a sense of, I'm assuming that there's a sense of fulfillment because there is joy and because you've obviously found your purpose. Yeah. But then there's the frustration of thinking that this is so overwhelming. Yeah. I think this is where I, I, I sometimes this is where I am. And I, you, your, your story um, makes me feel like all these kids, you know, my daughter in college and her friends about to graduate, they're going yeah. to watch your story. And yeah. um, I want you to speak to them. Like, I think, you know, we look at you know, like people like, oh, there's 65 million refugees, right? Yes, and yes. this is the suffering. This is what's going on. And like, for me, it's like, I had 16 to 20 kids to worry about. That was a lot more manageable. You know, it was like, these were the kids that were down the street from me that I could impact directly and then start carving away a little bit at every problem. Like I couldn't do everything. So let's form a connection. Let, let them trust me. Let them understand that they feel safe and welcome. Maybe in, you know, because where they live soccer was such a like 
that was the highlight of their day. If I could provide that every day and work in the back end to like, let's see, are there food pantries they could go to? Um, are there better jobs we can get their parents access to? Are there classes their parents need to go to so they can get better jobs? You know, so you start carving, you can't tackle the problem like all of it at once. It's like you start with one and then you learn more and then you tackle the second part. And then you learn more and you tackle the third, um, you know, because people are like, well, you know, your work is education. I was like, no, my work is social justice. Like, you know, we're trying to get refugees from a position of pity to a position of power and privilege. Yes. And, and, and that's the cycle we're trying to break. And this is what I loved also looking at, um, at Fuji's Inc. is that you offer guidance and consultancy for others working with refugees. This is incredible. Well, it was like we had to take a step back because we were like, you know, I tell my students, you're so lucky to be in America. You're so lucky to be in the school. And then we have a responsibility to share what we know with everybody else, because then if they can help their 30 or 100 kids and everyone helps, then that 65 million is less overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. Everyone looks at the number and says, well, we can't do anything, you know, or starts blaming refugees for all their problems. And, you know, that happens in America, it happens in Jordan, it happens everywhere. Um, then, you know, it's, yeah. I, yeah, it seems like I've been reading now, uh, uh, you know, the, the, of course, racism now, science has proved that this is not even scientific, this whole idea of the, the superior race. So that's yeah. off the table. But now what is much worse is this um, cultural supremacy and the cultural uh, um, discrimination that's going on. And I know now is probably, uh, you're at the height of this, you know, with uh, what is going on in the States with the wall. I mean, all over in Europe yeah. and even here, you know, in, in Jordan and the Middle East, it's the same. Um, yeah, so go on. You've, then you discover uh, uh, home uh, education, like the issue with yeah. reading and literacy. Yeah, like I, I mean, again, I was naive. I was like, we're in America, like we're in good schools. Um, free education. Free education. I thought every school in America was like ACS and Amman. You know, it was like this American school, they should all be like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But they weren't at all. Um, and, you know, some of my players had been in the country three, four years and could not read a word. And it shook me, uh, I think, more than anything else, because I know the power of education. You know, my family valued it. Um, my grandmother very much and all the women and females in the family to get it. Um, and I felt I was like one degree removed. Like if I didn't have an education, I would be in the same exact position that these families were in. Like if I couldn't speak English, if I didn't have a college degree, people would treat me the same exact way. And, and that was wrong. And that was, and so I was like, so if I have this, how can they have it? Um, and how overwhelming was that? I mean, forget the food. <laughs> now, okay, how do I teach these kids in grades seven and eight who cannot read and yet they're in the system? That one seems simpler than the food for some reason. I don't know. Like, I think, you know, like, oh, we've been to school. I know what a school is. I'd never been a teacher. Um, I'd taken some education classes. Um, I don't know if it's because I had excellent teachers growing up that I was like, oh, this should be easy. Like, I, I don't remember having a horrible teacher in elementary, middle or high school. Like, I just thought all teachers are good. It can't be that hard. 
um, and we started at the beginning, you know, so you start with the letters of the alphabet, the days of the week, uh, the cult, it's like if I was to teach someone Arabic right now, you know, like someone who's 14, you don't start in middle school content, you start from the beginning. And, you know, when you have a group of kids that are, are all in the same place, and you allow, you tell them, you're like, you can't read. Like, that's one of the first things I say to all my new students first day of school is like, you guys can't read. And everybody's like, I can't, I was like, you can't. I, I have the test results, you can't read. I was like, now we have to work on getting you to second or third grade by the end of first year, and then work your way up. And you work year round, all year? All year, all year, yeah. Um, and that it's hard work. What was your day like before before uh, you opened the school? What was your day like? You would coach, like when, did soccer come first? Food? Uh, I, I would coach and then I would tutor and then I would go home. So how many hours were you spending with the kids? With, with the kids about four to five hours a day. Every day? Every, Every day. day, yeah. And you started out with the boys before the school opened. The school included girls after yeah so the like i believe when you're trying to tackle a problem or help people is you have to learn from them you have to understand what the causes are from them and their needs not impose your needs on them or well i'm going to make myself feel good so i'm going to teach art today and i'm like they don't want art they you know they want to play soccer so um and with the girls it took a while for the parents to buy into it um, you know, they're like, yeah, they're even like, the parents with the sending the boys, they wouldn't send the girls, the boys, but the girls had to stay home and clean, um, and help them home. And so it triggered a lot of the stuff that I grew up with. And I'm like, like, I remember like yelling at a dad, you know, it was this Iraqi dad. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, this is your daughter. She's smarter than your son. Like, what are you? um, but then they saw that. The boys were not getting in trouble. They were improving. Um, and I mean, even like them wearing a shirt and tie, like the optics of it, like our boys started looking different than the other boys in the community and improving so much more. So they were trying. So a group of parents came and they said, we want our daughters in the school. I said, that's fine, but they're going to play soccer. And they're like, no, no, no. They need to be home at 3.30. I was like, no, no, no. The way it works is like this, and there's no compromise. Um, and I think if I wasn't Arab, I couldn't have said that. I think if I was an American, I couldn't have said that. But I was like, nope. You know, I know where these dads are coming from, and, and they're going to have to let go. Um, and, you know, every now and then it's, it's a parent, a new parent that comes up. Um, but now the other parents tell them, like, nope, this is America, and our daughters have opportunities. and. They need to be educated. Um, yeah. And do you feel you got to the parents through the kids as well? Like, do you feel like things have changed for the parents? You support the moms, probably? <clears throat> yeah, we help try to place the parents in jobs if they need help. Um, if a parent is sick, we pair them up with doctors in the community. Like, we try to take away the adult responsibility from our children. Um, and we've hired some parents now to work in the school. Um, and we want to continue doing that because it's really powerful to have them in the school. The kids don't like it, but um, the teachers love it. Uh, 
And, you know, they can speak the language, they can translate with other parents, they can do that cultural brokerage that um, others can't, you know, and they can explain things to teachers, like, this is why this kid said this, or this is what it really means. Um, yeah, so... So, um, Luma, can, can you break it down now? You have two schools. We're kind of rushing through the story, but uh, you have two schools. You started out in Georgia with... Yeah. In Clarkson, Georgia. With 28, yeah. uh, how many kids? Now we have uh, 87 kids in the school there. Uh-huh. And then? We have. And then we opened a new school in Columbus, Ohio this uh, past August. And we have 38 kids there. And that's supposed to double every year. And you chose Columbus because it's another resettlement uh, location? Yeah, it's a large resettlement hub. And then... Um, in Ohio, we have school vouchers, so half our cost is covered by the state. Ah, oh, excellent. Okay. So we're looking at Cleveland right after Columbus, and then we're exploring other cities and states. Um, and as we get bigger, you know, I, I think more and more people are going to request us coming in. Is the, uh, the sh I don't know, did they call him Sheriff, the guy who appeared on that video with, uh, was it CBS? Is, yeah. he, is he still yes. involved? No, no he, he left two years after, yeah. But yeah. do you feel like there's a lot of uh, help uh, coming from local authorities? Um, some days, you know, some days there's a lot of help. Um, some days they show up when the cameras show up. Uh, but he's a good guy. He was a good guy. You know, there's others that... You know, the like CNN wanted to film, you know, someone in town. I was like, nope, he's going to show up. You know, why don't you ask the kids about him? And the kids are like, well, he only shows up with a camera. And, you know, like they all know it. Um, but we have uh, a number of volunteers that have been tutoring the kids for eight to nine years, um, you know, that come once a week and help them learn. And um, those are the really powerful relationships, you know, because our one of the things um, that our students feel is that people aren't going to be there for them all the time, that they're going to leave, that they're going to abandon them, that they're not going to show up. Um, and so I tell everybody when we first start, like, that's what they're going to test you on. They're going to act out. They're going to push your buttons because they want to see that you aren't going anywhere. Uh -huh. um, and that's what you have to show. Like, you can't get rid of me. Um, do you think that, did they do this to you? Uh, they did it in different ways. So sometimes they would act out on the field. And so I, I was burnt out and I usually go away and visit like my friends during breaks. And so it was like almost Christmas time. I had the kids gathered around and I said, guys, you know, like it's, we're going to have a break for three weeks. Um, I'm going away. I'm going to go visit my best friend in Massachusetts. Um, and I don't want you guys to call me or text me unless it's an emergency. And they're looking at me and they're like, how long are you going? Is it going two weeks? It's a vacation. You know, I tried to show them the map and everybody just got really quiet. Um, and I didn't understand. Uh, I was like, you know, people go away for vacation and come back. Um, and so I was dropping one of my players off and you know, I had dropped four of them off and here's the last one. Car ride was very quiet and usually it's loud. People are singing or talking and oh my God. And I turn and he has tears coming down his face. Like, what's wrong? And he's like, you're leaving and you're never coming back. Wow. And I'm like, what? And he's like, what's going to happen to the Fuji's family? And at that point, we were just the Fuji's. Like, that's how the name came. And I'm like, 
I'm coming back. Like I explained to you, like, I'm going away. I'm going to visit a friend and I'm crazy. He's like, no, you're never coming back. And so I said, you know, I never go away anywhere without my watch. I'm going to give you my watch. And when I come back, I'm going to come get it. And he's, he was like, okay. He's like, can I call you? I was like, you can't call me, but I, I will come back. Um, and he did call me. He called me every day. Um, wow. to ask what time it is. He's like, what time is it? I was like, I, I don't have my watch. You know, it was like this playful thing. Um, but it was like, are you, you know, anytime I left to go away. Um, and even now, like I've gotten so much in the habit of telling them exactly when I'm leaving and when I'm coming back. Um, wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's just like small things like your kids need to know if you're going away when you're coming back. Your dog needs to go to know you're coming back. I mean, yeah. you know. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, Luma, you talked about the story of one shoe. And I yeah. thought that was just so powerful in, in so many ways. So can you tell his story and then... Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, the first day of... <clears throat> you know, when we were trying to make a team, those six boys and I... We drive around uh, Clarkson, you know, showing the ball, telling kids in the different languages to come to the field at five o'clock. Um, and the first day, I had 30 kids show up. And that was a little too much for me. Like, I'm a good coach, but 30 new kids um, and one adult is a little tough. And so I split them up into two teams. I'm like, we're going to scrimmage and see what we have here. Um, and I tried to get them to play, you know, the center, right or middle part of the field, tried to give them a little bit of positions. Um, and one of the kids caught my eye. He was the smallest one out there. Um, and he was running all over the place, uh, but with a big grin on his face. And, um, I was trying to get his attention so he could focus on one area. Um, but I didn't know his name, you know, so I asked Noor, one of the Afghan kids, I was like, Noor, what's his name? And Noor looks at him, looks at me and then grins. He's like, oh, that's one shoe. And I look over and the kid has one shoe on his uh, left foot, his kicking foot. And his other foot was bare. Um, and I just, you know, watched him play, didn't have a care in the world, you know, and this is something that, uh, you know, most, most kids I knew then would have a fit if they didn't have shoes to play. Oh my um, God. And, you know, he came off the field, took off his shoe, wiped it down, put it in his backpack and took out his flip-flops to walk home. Where was he from? He was from Liberia. Is he, is he, has he graduated? Yeah, he graduated from college. His family moved to Iowa four years after. So I had them for four years and they moved. Uh, Is he still in touch with you? He's still in touch with me. And then his, uh, I coached both his brothers as well. So they're still, one of the older brother was two years ago. Like uh, just, um, I came into the house and he was sitting in the living room and I was like freaked out. And he had a key to the house and he had hid it before he left. And pulled it out and just, I was like, what if somebody else walked in and found you sitting? He's like, this is our home. Like, we can sit here. Um, but he'd come from Iowa to visit and wanted to surprise me. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. Is he, uh, does he help out? So the ones in Iowa, like, he, the one that came to visit came, helped out for a month. Now he wants to come and visit here. Like, several of my players that have moved to other states will call you know, wanting to come and help and give back. Um, like Baba was on break from college and he came and stayed for a month and was at school every day. Can you tell the story of Baba since you mentioned Baba? Because we didn't, it wasn't filmed, our yeah. conversation. I don't know where his, his story starts. He, um, he, he's a kid from 
uh, Sudan uh, that I met about uh, what, 10, 10, 11 years now. Um, and on his first day of practice, he actually hit me. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, they were playing, and the kid slide tackled him, fouled him. He went in to hit the kid. I put my body in between. He started hitting me. Uh, luckily, at that point, I was bigger than he was, and I could hold him. Up. Um, but he had this blind rage and anger. Um, and he was bullied at school, wasn't he? Yeah, he was made fun of because of his name, because of how dark he is, because he couldn't speak English. Um, his home life was a little tough. Um, and so he bought all that to the field and you know, worked with him year after year uh, to control his rage, to control his anger. And now when I tell that story, um, people that meet him don't believe it. They're like, no, 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 like Bob is like a teddy bear. Like he's the kindest, gentlest person. Wow. Um, but it took, it took a number of years to get that all out. Um, and for him to trust, to trust that the adults cared about him or not going to use him or take advantage of him or make fun of him. How long did it take for him to soften? How long was the process till you really won him for over? Five years. Wow. Yeah. And at yeah. no point did you think of giving up? No, no. Because you know now we deal with schools that um, I think they try for a few years to uh, to contain behavioral issues, and then you know you get called in as a parent and uh, and told that we can't have we can't re-enroll your kid because uh, your kid has behavioral issues, and it makes yeah. me wonder, you know, because behavioral issues are obviously symptoms of something. And whose role is it, you know, if the schools give up on the kids? I think it's like on the school, um, like you find out what the root of the problem is. I mean, I had, I had teachers tell me when we took Baba in from his public school, his teachers like, you're wasting your time. This one's not going anywhere. And maybe that was what made me not give up on him. Like someone's challenging me. Um, but he, he wanted it. Like you saw those moments of like when he became a child. Like you saw it on the field when he would hug his teammates, you know, like those glimmers came. Like, I'm not saying that there aren't kids where I said, I can't do this. And that usually comes when they're harming other kids in our program. Um, and we've tried everything we could. But when you see that there is something there that they want, and I think you can see it with the majority of kids, you just have to find it. Like you have a responsibility not to give up. Um, and sometimes, like, it's the families where their parents have given up. Yeah. But then who, who even those, if you, the school gives up, the parents give up, where do these kids go? Who, who has these kids back? Do they go into cages, like what's happening now? And, you know? They, 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 they do. Into jail. Like, what we've seen is they go into jail. Um, but that's why it's like we need to invest earlier in them. Like, we, sh we I mean, if we'd gotten to Baba before that full rage, when he was, t like, imagine if we got him at six, it would have been much quicker and easier. Um, yeah. But, th but then this is, this is something you can't control, obviously, with, with uh, refugees, you can't control. No, you can't control. We can control the, the trauma we cause, though. We can control the reason why they yeah. end up being displaced. displaced. We're responsible for that. We are responsible for that. And I think that's what I find very inspiring about your story, Duma, is because we live in one of the, the largest host countries, refugee host countries. We still have them in cages and, you know, like open air prisons. And, yeah. 
And I think you have hit a nerve for me because they're right around, like they're in my neighborhood, you know? Yeah. We speak, I don't think there's a language issue. There's no, there isn't a cultural issue. Um, but I think we, uh, we feel handcuffed because it's overwhelming. Yeah. And you, you, you've simplified it. You broke it down into, I have 16 kids to take care of and I'm going to take care of them in every aspect. Um, yeah. starting that's, with your family. that's your starting family. That's that's what you do for them, you know. And instead of looking at the million that we have in Zatari, like carve out like one block, and then somebody else will take the next block. And every, you know, like that's that's how it should work. It shouldn't be the responsibility of one government or one person. Is like, you know, like if you and like ten friends took up ten blocks, that would change for those like one hundred or two hundred people. You change their lives, you change the path, you change the trajectory, you change everything. Uh, Luma, I know they, I saw somewhere that they're like Universal Studios are interested, like they're doing a movie or something on your story. I wonder, I know, I know you don't like any of this and you know, I think it's an awesome story though. Um, have you ever had time to sit down? Cause you say you're in social justice. To sit down and document this, have you thought about writing a book have you thought about anything like any I, kind of reference yeah. for it i've thought more about it now um i think there's two reasons now um because the environments we don't have any stories out there that humanize refugees immigrants muslims like we don't have that out there and we we have it all in one story you know not in let me bring from here and here um and then I've started sharing my story <clears throat> more with my students and my uh, my children. Um, and Leila, she's only four, but she asks a lot of questions. And I feel I need to <clears throat> I need to tell her the story, like she, because it's her generation that is going to have whatever we leave. Because there's a story, there's part of your personal story as well. I get the sense that is not complete, that you don't know all the details of your grandfather's. Um, uh, persecution before he left Syria and I, I am also just as assuming but I'm sure there's a lot of that like from your mother's experience yeah. as well that you don't know about. Well it was funny because I was like talking to her <clears throat> because she's like you know you always talk about your grandmother you always talk about um, I was thinking of that too. Why don't you talk about me? I said mama like you've never identified as a refugee and she's like, I'm not a refugee, my mom is. And I'm like, you were in the same car, you know? And she's like, yeah, but, and she couldn't like, she, she, she doesn't want that identity, you know? And I, I was like, and, and I said, everything I learned about Syria, I learned from my grandmother, not from you. Um, and I think, and that's one thing that's made me really focus on with the kids is for them to love countries they're from and understand why, so they're not rejecting it. Um, but I was talking to her last year, um, and I don't know how it came up, but like we were in Lebanon, like when the civil war broke out and she put me in a car and we went to the airport and I mean, there were bombs flying everywhere. And she's like, but I had to get you out. Like I would do anything to protect you. And I was just like, why have you never told me this? She's like, didn't I tell And she had never, never talked about it. Um, but the, what a mother would do for her child. Like we're seeing it now, um, every day. Um, and I think there's more to like 
dig out from their story because I think a lot of people that experience whether it was Syria or Iraq they block it out or they don't want to talk about it but then it's up to it's up to the generations after to heal that line yeah. you're healing your mother you're healing your yeah. grandmother I mean what you're doing now is uh, you're closing you're you're just closing the circle and you're also healing all the pain I don't want I don't like to go too woo woo but really I mean yeah. it's just an incredible story so there is a part about humanizing the suffering but you know yeah. what else I think I think you have so much to share um, in terms of how to uh, uh, fix education fix whatever is wrong with education now and what we're doing in the you know with public education uh, you have so much to teach coaches on coaching and you know you're not just a coach on the field you're a coach off the field and you're like another yeah. mentor and parent there's just you know so much yeah I wish I had time like I um, like to sit and write like that's one thing that I have been craving more lately um, you know because I'll see uh, coaches um, and I cringe at what they're doing with the kids um, and I remember like after one game like a coach came to me he's like you, you're lucky your kids have hearts my kids don't have hearts oh my god and I'm like no like everybody's got heart like you just have to find it you know and um and I think like my identity is, is a coach. Like you can't turn it off. Like if you're a coach and you want to win games, you have to think about every aspect of your player and what they're like when they come to you and what they're like when they finish with you and not just as athletes, but as human beings. Um, and like Baba, Jeremiah, all of them have coached younger kids under me. Oh, like, really? Yeah. Cause now I just coach the oldest kids and my old your kids coach the younger so you've built a model too my god Luma, i'm telling you this has to be written in a book you have built you have you have systems in place that yeah. you can teach governments you can teach unhcr you can you mean it's mind-blowing you have to make the time yeah luma what is a refugee i mean you want the technical definition no i don't want i want your i want you what what who's a refugee uh, so my grandmother's a refugee, my students are refugees, uh, my babysitters are refugees, um, my kids' role models are refugees. Um, are you a refugee? Yes, I'm a refugee. Um, I, think, uh, I, I think for me, refugees have uh, given me faith in humanity um, together, like as a group probably the most powerful, resilient, compassionate group of people out there. Um, what is home for you? I think home is, like for me, it's, you know, I've got, like sometimes when I say, oh, back home, like I'm talking about Jordan, um, or now sometimes when I refer to it, I'm referring to Atlanta, because that's where I lived for 20 years. Um, and I think it's, it's where there's people that you love, like where you have connections and history. Um, and it can be multiple places. I, I don't think it's just one place. So it's the human, uh, it's the human connections, those relationships. Yeah. And it's where you feel at home, right? So you say, hey, do you feel at home? And there are certain places where I feel at home. And usually when it's around more people that are like me, or maybe sometimes I want to feel at home when uh, people are speaking Arabic or 
eating that food or sometimes when there's people playing soccer and just clowning around, like I think it's where you feel most yourself. And do, do the kids you work with make you feel closer to home? Yes, yes. I mean, They're when, most when I say, you know, we refer to each other as family and I mean, we do. Um, and we take care of each other like that. And um, yeah. Have you um, have you finally found your purpose? Um, I think so. I think so. I think it's you know you you know sometimes I'm like you know is this the middle of the journey? But I think this might still be the beginning of it. Um, but yeah, I I think I have found it. There's so much more to do. And are you a hundred percent comfortable with who you are? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have a family. I never thought I would have a family. I never thought I'd be a parent. Um, and my students, my my friends all embrace our family and they're part of it. Um, I had 12 students staying with us this summer to help recruit in Columbus. So my senior class was all here. And, in your house? Yeah, in my house. <laughs> it was the previous summer. It was like 12 kids, uh, you know, my wife and my two children and a newborn and, baby and the, the Emily was pregnant at the time so he wasn't there yet but you know I would just wish there was like a camera to see this mix of of craziness and love like you know, we had kids from Burma and Eritrea and Iraq and Kurdistan and Sudan and my wife is Jewish and like it was just crazy and and, you, and this is normal for your kids and this is normal yeah they don't think yeah. there's anything strange in any of that arrangement. No, no, I was worried. I was worried when I uh, first came out to them. Um, I actually didn't come out to them. They saw pictures of my wedding online and uh, three of my players came to my office and they were like really upset. This was the oldest kid. So they were 18, 19 at the time. And I said, I understand you're upset. Um, but I want to explain, you know, why I didn't tell you Um this was how long after you've... This was in 2011, back in 2011. So how long after you made, you, you had, you built relationships with them? Six years. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Yeah, five, six years. And I said, um, like, what are, what are you most upset about, you know? And one of the kids said that you didn't tell us that we had to find out from someone else. And I said, well... There are a couple of reasons I didn't tell you. You know, the first is I met you when you were 10 and 11. Like, do I come in and say, hey, I'm your coach. I'm gay. Like, like, how do you make that introduction? I said, I've never lied to you. You've been to my house. Like, you, like there's nothing that I've lied to you about. Like, but you didn't tell us. And I said, maybe part of me was scared because if I told you, you would have the same reaction that, like, my dad and some of my family members had and you would not want anything to do with me. And they're like, we would never do that, you know? And that was like therapeutic for me. And then one of them was just like, he looked at me and he was just so upset. He's like, why did you not invite me to your wedding? And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, that's what he was upset about. It's like, you should have wow. Like, no, 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 you're not going to my wedding. But it was just, um, <clears throat> and then, you know, like I went and, and they said, you, now you need to tell everybody, the, the entire team. 
which was like 80 kids. And so I went down and told all 80 and they were like clapping and cheering. There's one family that had an issue with it and they withdrew their son. Like I'm not, it wasn't all. Yeah, I was, I was, I was just going to ask you about that. Um, what was the family's reaction? Because it's almost as if you were coming out back home, you know? Like yeah. say, I called Jordan home for you. Yeah. But it's I mean, some of the kids are like, coach, I'm not going to tell my parents. And I was like, yeah. that's prerogative, you know? Um, and the family that pulled their son out, I, I am pretty sure that he is um, oh my God. hit a little bit, um, you know, but like I've had um, like the families invite us as a couple, like after that, the families stopped inviting me by myself. They would invite us as a couple um, and would ask about both of us. Um, when we had Layla, Layla's our first, uh, four of the boys wanted to bike to the hospital to meet their sister. Um, and I have, like one of my favorite photos is, you know, us with the baby and like three of my players with her. They were the first visitors to the hospital. Um, and like, I think what it's done is like expose the kids to something that they um, were either fearful of or disgusted by or whatever and normalized it and humanized it for them. Um, and I've had a handful of kids come out to me. Um, and I'm glad that they have someone that they can share that with. Um, it's really important for them to have those role models. Um, but like our babysitter back in Atlanta was an Iraqi mom that wore a hijab. Like, you know, it's like this never would have happened back home. But like here she she's under no like constraints to like go with what people think or what people don't think. And These are the um, stories that have to be told, Luma. This, yeah. These are stories I mean, that have to like, like, I, I remember her, like, she was talking to one of my employees and she said, like, it was hard. She's like, I knew, but I didn't know until, like, I said it. And she said, what's hard is Luma treats us better than anyone else. So how can I not love her and respect her? Like, you know, and so that was what it was about. Um, and another, like, um, my team has to check in on families. And so she was checking in on a family, Sudanese family. They have like, eight kids and three of them are with us. And the dad was like, he's like, so it's true. Like, Luma's gay. He's like, I don't know. I don't know about this. And then his wife put him in his place. She's like, oh, you be quiet. She takes care of your son better than you do. You need to respect her. And she's like, don't start with this nonsense of yours. And and I was like, wow, like this, like Sudanese woman standing up to her husband. And um, yeah, I it's it's been. It, I mean, I was I was really scared of what the reaction would be. Um, but again, the responsibility of of being a role model and. And then in some ways it was taken out of my hands. Like they saw the pictures. I had to explain it. Like there was no, um, and then like the, the Ted talk was the first time in a talk I've done it. Like I've done it in panels and stuff, but I, it's this, is world. <laughs> this, is, this is it. Like the reach is like, you know, over a hundred million people. And I'm like, here, did you um, did you want to do it? Did you want to come out? People wondering, and I was like, "How do you not know?" Like, I have kids. I have like, and I was like, "Here, here it is," you know. Um, and I showed the talk to my students before it went live. Uh, Ted gave me a copy of it, and I stepped out of the room um, because I shared my grandmother's story. That was the first time I shared it with them. Um, and, you know, several of the kids came after me. Some of them were crying. They were like, they, you know, I, when I tell stories, it was never deeply personal. It was, you know, I can tell stories about everybody else. 
Um, but I was always encouraging my students to own their story and tell it. And you had to own your own. I had to own my own. And uh, one of the boys came up to me and he's like, coach, I'm so proud to be a refugee. Wow. And I was like, yes, like that's what I wanted that talk to do is, yeah. Were you worried about what people would think in Jordan and um, Syria? You know, I get and she's like, like, do you have to? Like, can't you just? And I was like, no, like, it's time. Like, I've, I've done it. And I've done it out of, like, respect for them for, for quite some time. I was like, I can't. Like, I said, I have children now. And, and I said, and people in Jordan need to know this. Like, like, they're, yeah. Like, this issue needs to be talked about in the Middle East. And... Yeah. Luma, what would you, uh, so now I'm just really only assuming that my, my daughters and their friends are, we have to cut, we have to cut, we have to finish. Have to finish. Um, Luma, no, oh my God, you have no idea what's going on in my mind if you would only just go in and see the rush and I'm trying to prioritize. What would you, what would you tell my daughter, my 20 year old daughter? who is uh, probably at this point struggling with uh, issues of, so many issues, but uh, issues of privilege and wanting to, oh, who's that? Come, bring them in. They Hello, you Come say hi. Come here. Come, Come bring them in. Is that Leila? Come say hi. Come here. Come This is my friend and she's in Jordan. Hi. She's asking about the Fugees and about you. Hi, pretty. Hi. Did you just wake up? <laughs> yeah. Oh. It's a snow day. Uh huh. Oh. So, Luma, what would you, what would you tell my daughter? I I would tell her. Keeping in mind, sorry, hold on. Keeping in mind that she's probably uh, right now at where you are at when you were uh, just trying to find answers and trying to um, figure out your purpose and uh, fighting that white privilege? I think I would tell her to try a lot of things mm -hmm. and put herself in situations where she is uncomfortable or maybe the minority, you know, like... Um, like do something that makes you question your values or questions your privilege. Sorry, they're all like crying right now. Um, okay, we have kids. Sorry. Um, to be okay with failure. I think this generation is terrified of failure because everything they do is documented online and they have to present themselves as perfect. And it's the places where things are not perfect is where she will find answers to her purpose, like answers in a parking lot with kids playing soccer with rocks as a, as a goal. You know, that's not... And one, and one shoe. And a one shoe. Yeah, that's not something that's Instagrammable or a Facebook post. You know, that's something real. And, and I would tell her because she is privileged, she is you know, it's like we have this burden of responsibility and we have to take that seriously. We can't just close our eyes and block out suffering or say, this is too overwhelming. I can't do anything about it. Like carve out 
and tackle whatever part you can tackle. You don't have to solve. Like for me, I, I don't feel I have to solve the refugee crisis. That's not my responsibility. But for my kids, I can do that. And then now I was like, okay, now we can do it for more kids. And then for more, one step at a time. Um, and to have fun. And don't worry about what other people think. And we get so caught up in what other people think. And it's so true. Um, uh, Luma, here's your plug-in. I know you're in the, in the process of raising funds. Um, so if there's anything you wish to plug in for <laughs> to the 20 people that will probably watch this, <laughs> um, uh, go ahead. Uh, like for me, it's, you know, you mentioned like we, we can teach governments, we can teach people how to do this. We do this on 100% philanthropy. Um, and so our, our website is fujisfamily.org. We can take donations from any country in the world. Um, and, and I would love to see more in the Middle East support us um, because I'm, I'm from the Middle East. And sometimes you know, when I look at my donor list, I was like, where are my people? Um, and I, I would love to see more because we, we can do more. And I think your people are looking for your support in terms of showing them the path of this holistic approach to, so it's a give and take situation. That's why I urge you to find the time, even if it's five minutes a day, to think about documenting this because this is a very powerful, powerful system, integrated system that you have that I think we yeah. can all learn from, schools and governments. Yeah. Thank you, Luma. You're awesome. I wish you the best of luck and I'm here to help. Thank I you so much.